I say he took a shortcut, but he dominated. Yeah, but peace, y'all. Peace, y'all. The home. Peace, I'm Lasana, coming to you live from the Brownstone in Bed-Stuy. And I'm Fred from Fidei, Lower Manhattan. Indeed, and we are sportsmen, the home of WAH. Fred, the people want to know, what is this WAH thing about? So WAH is a Japanese word that means harmony, generally. But in uh, sports context, it could mean uh, teamwork. Dude, all right. So we're definitely the home of WAH, home of teamwork and harmony in here. And uh, yeah. So what are we sipping today, Osana? Well, today we are sipping some straight bourbon from Kings County Distillery, which incidentally is the oldest distillery in New York City. So I jumped on the sea yesterday in about 90 plus uh, temperatures and went out there and, and grabbed this bottle for our second episode. Nice smoky caramel notes. Yes, yes. Cheers, my friend. Happy belated birthday again. Thank you so much. You can always catch us on a celebratory note, Fred. Mm -hmm. Nice. So, what's going on in the sports world? Well, one thing I wanted to revisit, Mm -hmm. because we got into the conversation about um, whether or not the G League was a viable alternative for uh, young actors. Uh, athletes and we were talking about the NBA and uh, young black athletes as a result in comparison to college and I made a statement like well most don't graduate Mm -hmm. and I thought about it during the week I was like "Uh, have you looked into that recently right to make that statement because I do want our facts to be on point and uh, yeah so I guess we we both did a little uh, studying on this matter, uh, but I think you got you compiled some data from uh, the NCAA. So why don't why don't we work with those numbers and uh, discuss this a little bit uh, more deeply? Yeah, so I, I I was able to look at uh, some some figures that has been released by the NCAA at NCAA.org, and specifically it compares the 2002 graduation rates. With 2021, which uh, that's you know a pretty good span of time, and what we found is that graduation has improved. And if you look at overall student athlete groups, uh, black men in 2002 were 51 percent; they're now graduating at 76 percent. Uh, Hispanic or Latino men were at 59, and they are now graduating at 83 percent. And white men were at 76%, and they're now graduating at 90%. So why, why do you think there is that discrepancy between whites and minorities? Well, head start for one thing, yeah. right? And also, obviously, uh, resources. And this trickles down all the way to K through 12 as well when mm-hmm. you compare the amount of resources that are allotted to uh, schools that may be deemed predominantly black in comparison to uh, schools that are predominantly white enrolled. So mm-hmm. it's all interrelated, right, to, from K through 12 up, mm-hmm. up to college, right? And also, as we know, the bigger university obviously have more resources and tutors and, and those type of things that not necessarily available to uh, some of the black athletes, depending on, upon where they're matriculating. As it relates to basketball players in college, yes, sir. how about, you know, the one and done athlete. Does that add to that 
number, you think? That's a good point. These are very general stats. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like a deep dive, right? right? Uh, Cause one thing I still stand by uh, the G League as an as a viable alternative for some black athletes coming out of college in re, re, or comparative to college. But I also say um, we don't know what they're graduating in, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right? Right. we recall that the the uh, the scandal at the University of North Carolina where they had a team of people taking tests for the guys, and uh, you know the jokes about getting. Uh, bachelors in basket weaving and that type of thing so you know we would have to dig a little deeper to see is that increase is uh because of rigorous academic instruction or is there something else going on but i did want to kind of correct the record uh in my statement when i said most don't graduate you know it's certainly uh, an interesting topic of discussion i'm probably something that we should sort of keep an eye on over time yes, and sir. maybe discuss again in the future um, yeah, a lot of other stuff going on as it relates to basketball. And I was thinking about Brittany Griner. Indeed. Your thoughts? Well, I feel for her, mm -hmm. right? And my hope is that this is part of the process to, you know, eventually do a prisoner swap, as mm -hmm. they call it. Uh, that guy who Nick Nicholas Clay Cage played in that movie where he's the arms dealer. <laughs> you know, the word is yeah. Washington to bring him home, right? So, uh, so that's my hope that this is part of the process uh, that would eventually lead to her coming home soon. So I feel for her too. I mean, certainly when you're younger, you make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And most of the time we make mistakes, they're not as big a mistake as the one that Brittany just made. Yeah. But my first reaction when I heard about it is, how stupid are you <laughs> to be in Russia and to be caught, mm -hmm. you know, with something like what she was caught with. Um, I mean, outside of the show, we always talk about, you know, the country, the United States. Right. You know, warts and all, this country, um, my opinion, best country on the planet. Okay. Uh, I understand why Brittany Griner was in Russia. You know, you don't make as much money in the WNBA as you make in the NBA. Yeah, they have and, to uh, You go and play in another league to supplement your income. Mm -hmm. But I think she and her agent should be a lot more on top of things to make sure she doesn't make, or anybody makes, especially an American in Russia, make a mistake of this kind. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of puts, you know, our government in a hard position where you know now now we have to trade an arms dealer you know <laughs> and maybe a future first round draft pick or something but uh, <laughs> but you know yeah um i feel for her but but um, th there there should be some more education for these younger kids it's you know it's almost leangelo ball like in China, stealing sunglasses. Right. You know, in, in a, I mean, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? Um, so, yeah, little disappointed in in the in the younger generation, uh, but certainly, <laughs> it's not something that you should be punished for to the degree that she's about to be, or you know, they're looking Possibly, to punish right. her. Right. Yeah. But. Uh, well, yeah. you know, I'm not one of those uh, get off my lawn, lawn mm -hmm. type OGs, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Um, I don't think that that was the first time she ever did that. Mm -hmm. And she probably did it a hundred times before, but it was just the timing of things surrounding Ukraine. And, you know, they saw opportunity there that they capitalized upon, right? I I wonder if it's going to have a reverberating effect in that are black players going to ever play for Russia again? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, if, if this, if, you know, given this kind of incident. So I, I wonder about that and how this is going to impact uh, American athletes playing internationally, but specifically in Russia, you know, what what the, uh, you know, the outcomes of, of this whole incident might be, though. Well, I mean, you could certainly be successful going to Russia and look, or China for, you know, for that matter. And look at Stefan became God he in did. China, right? He did. All right. Yeah. So but I agree with you though when you're in foreign lands, yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. black people even here in America, right? That yep. we have to definitely uh take precautions. Uh that's just the the way yeah. of the world. Hopefully we could our government could address this swiftly mm-hmm. now going yeah. forward and get her out of there and get her back into the country. Yeah, and I can see the leagues, the WNBA, NBA in their onboarding of their players now. Mm-hmm particular ones who are going overseas to kind of raise awareness of the possibilities of what could happen if Mm -hmm. they don't uh, stay as close to the domestic laws of the country that they're playing for as possible. Cool. So that goes into... uh, We'll get away from basketball a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, let's get away from basketball. My man Shohei. Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani. Yes. I kind of refer to him as Bo Jackson in one sport. Because, <laughs> you know, Bo obviously played two sports. Dion played basketball, I mean, football as well as baseball. But Shohei is like a very unique athlete in that he's a pitcher who's very effective at getting batters out, but he also hits for power. Right. Right. For perspective, most teams don't allow their pitchers to even hit because pitchers are notoriously terrible hitters, right? right? And so for this guy this to be in the middle of the lineup hitting home runs and then go out and striking people out, it's pretty amazing. It is amazing. But it's, well, you know, the, the, the most famous pitcher-turned-hitter is Babe Ruth. He started out his career as a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. Indeed. And because he was such an effective hitter, he became an outfielder, you know, uh, as his, um, as his uh, uh, career uh, progressed. Um, but, you know, playing multiple positions in baseball is not a rare thing. And it's not rare um, to be a pitcher and an everyday player or, or position player. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just rare in the professional ranks. Generally, if you are an elite baseball player from when you're very young, you probably pitched and you probably played one of the up the middle positions because you were one of the top athletes on the team. Up the middle meaning center field, shortstop, second base, maybe Mm -hmm. even catcher. Um, So it's not rare that you play multiple positions. Like I said, it's just rare as a professional. And it's rare as a professional, because especially if you're an elite level pitcher, elite, that is worth more than an elite level 
shortstop or second baseman, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the amount of time and money you invest to develop that pitcher, it's too much to risk to have him out in the field on four other days of the week um, and possibly injuring his arm yeah. or some other part of their body and, you know, can't pitch on a, you know, on a day. that So they don't want to take the risk. There's too much money being invested in pitchers, so which is the reason why we don't have multi-position players right. in major leagues. Otani always did it, even in Japan. Um, and one of the prerequisites for him to sign with a major league baseball team here in the United States was he wanted to play for a team that will allow him to do uh, what he'd like to do, which was hit and pitch. So the Angels were willing to take the risk, and they're the ones that are benefiting. Unfortunately, the Angels are (laughs) not a very good team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you'd be like, in a losing effort, he strikes out 10 and hits two home runs, right? right? So even, you know, probably the best uh, baseball player to ever come from Japan playing in the United States is Ichiro Suzuki. Ichiro. Ichiro, everybody knows Ichiro. Ichiro was an elite pitcher in high school. Okay. Um, He would play, you know, center field or right field. Uh, on other days, and he would pitch every, you know, fifth or sixth day. Israel was so graceful, man. Yeah. And he had a rifle, an absolute cannon of the right arm. And he, he was a fantastic baseball player. Yeah. And he could have easily done what Otani's doing now, but he focused his career in becoming an everyday Specialist. outfield. Right, outfielder. right, right. So who who are some of the other Japanese guys that people may not, may not be aware of who are uh, MLB stars even are playing at a high level? Well, we've we've had a number of them here, right? We just mm-hmm. mentioned Ichiro. Ichiro, obviously the, the the best of them all. Yes, sir. We've had, I guess, the first one that became famous here um, was uh, Hideo Nomo, who came in. What was it? Had to be in the 90s, right? He came in, pitched for the Dodgers, very successful for the Dodgers for many years, uh, although he sort of faded quickly. Um, uh, we also had a uh, Kazuhiro uh, Sasaki, who was a relief pitcher, also put, uh, pitched for the Mariners, was uh, okay. Suzuki, uh, Ichiro's uh, teammate here, uh, and, uh, fantastic closer. Uh, so we've had, a, we've had a few that have been very good here. Uh, in uh, the U.S. Yeah, that's pretty dope because we know they play baseball in Japan mm-hmm. at a very high level, right? Right. And uh, so it's cool to always highlight mm-hmm. that. Live golf. Live golf. Well, live ain't playing. Right? <laughs> so what do you have to say about, you know, what is live golf, uh, so live, first of live, all? Live golf. live golf is a competitive golf tour to the PGA tour that we have in the United States. Obviously PGA has been the United States tour here for many, many years. Uh, there are tours outside of the United States. There's one in Europe. There's, um, there's a, an Asia tour as well, but none of these tours ever, uh, stepped on each other's toes. They, they okay. stayed in their geographical area. Uh, I mean, players will, you know, 
rotate from one tour to the other, uh, try to you know play against better competition or make their name known more you know in Europe or Asia if you're a, an American player or right. if you're playing in Asia and you want to be uh, competing against the best, you come to the United States and play on the PGA Tour. Right. So Live Golf actually was created and is funded by the Saudi 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 Public Investment Fund. Um, and they're, they're here now to compete head to head against the PGA. Um, and at least initially in order to compete against the PGA tour, they've decided to try to buy players from the PGA tour and get them to commit to only play for on the live tour. Uh, so some, the more, you know, bigger names, American names that have signed on with Live is, you know, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, yeah, Bryson DeChambeau, Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, my wife's favorite, uh, Bubba Watson, and some you know big European names like Sergio Garcia, uh, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter, uh, and even uh, Henrik Stenson, who was supposed to be the Ryder Cap, the Ryder Cup captain for the European team uh, later this year. So those He's are top talking. names. So, yeah, yeah. So, so but, do you consider those Benedict Arnolds or what? What's your no, feeling you know, on that? So, right. but generally speaking, you know, the, the most of these names are are guys are that are on the latter part of their careers. Other than maybe Kepka and DeChambeau, they're still kind of prime players. Um, but I understand now, uh, Liv is targeting some NCAA guys to try mm. to tap into the up-and-coming talent uh, that's coming, um, that may be coming into the PGA. So, you know, in theory, I think live competition for a, you know, for a tour like PGA, which is basically a monopoly, you know, all all, all golfers are independent contractors, but they don't have any place other to play, other than to play on the PGA tour. So to have a competing tour is not a bad thing. Competition is not a bad thing. Okay. Um, I just feel like, you know, maybe where the money is coming from is is not the best place. Um, you know, it's the Saudis. Right. You know, we they, they have a history here. Their involvement in 9-11. Um, they have a history of, you know, human rights violations in... Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, not to mention, you know, uh, women's rights, and, and so not the best people, not with a really good history. I mean, not right. it's not to say that every country doesn't have their crosses to bear. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I was about to come. Yeah, to. yeah, the yeah. Saudis yeah. would say America <laughs> has, yeah, yeah, but uh, human rights abuses, yeah. and and coming from a marginalized uh, community within America. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not shedding any tears for the PGA mm-hmm. because the Saudis are, are right competing with them for this money. Because mm-hmm. traditionally, we was always excluded from the P- PGA and, mm-hmm. and those hollowed halls of mm-hmm. golf and mm-hmm. masters and all, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. So, so I view it is somewhat different mm-hmm. in that regards. And you know, and we can point to things in America with uh, uh, pay disparity between mm-hmm. men and women, right? Right. So, so I, I get some of that, but it's like, oh, okay, 
we sometimes don't have the moral capital to be so judgmental of other cultures in that way mm-hmm. uh, because we're not perfect. Right. 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 And uh, good old American capitalism, no, the, the foundation of that is competition. Right. Right. So the PGA filed a suit because the Saudis is throwing this money around and American golfers are, are jumping at it. Right. 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 It's it's an inter- it's an interesting thing that's happening, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. This monopoly, the, mm-hmm. that that monopoly, that right. o- that old order is being right. disrupted. We might and, not like who's doing the disrupting, but you know. But again, old sport, very traditional sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, and I I think any athlete, any sport, right. Um, you as a basketball player, you like LeBron James coming into the NBA as a high school player, mm-hmm. right? He wants to compare himself to the past, right? You want to be, I'm going to be as good as Michael Jordan was. I want mm-hmm. to be as good as Magic Johnson was, right? Right. You are playing the same game. You are in many, <clears throat> many occasions playing in the same arenas that all these past players played in. So you're always measuring yourself to the past. Right. Now, Live Golf has gone and changed the rules for their tournaments. They don't play 72 hole tournaments. They play 54 True. hole tournaments. Uh, there is no cut in their tournaments where, you know, PGA uh, tournaments, generally speaking, if you're not within 10 strokes of the lead, after the second round, you're cut from the weekend rounds, uh, you know, the tour, and you're done, and you don't earn any money that that week. Gotcha. Um, you know, these are these are rules that have been in place for centuries for this game. Playing on the live tour, you no longer could compare yourself to anything that's happened in the past because now you're no longer playing the same game. Right. Right. So. You, as an athlete, I understand taking the money, mm. right? Because it's a lot of money that's being thrown that's around. How many people could, you know, turn their back to it? Right. Other than Tiger, they apparently offered him $800 million to, to sign on, and he, he, he refused to sign on. Um, but I think every athlete, no matter what sport you play, your measuring stick is the past, and you always want to compare yourself. So, yeah, I understand why you're taking the money. Right. But at the same time, you no longer can compare yourself to what's happened in the past. You, you no longer can measure yourself to other players. And you can never determine how your career compared to somebody else's cool. if you play on the yeah, left tour. I get that piece. I yeah. get that piece, right? Uh, and we could spin off into different directions yeah. with that. Um, I, I will say that even within the various sports, you have purists within mm-hmm. those sports mm-hmm. who are saying that the form of that game that's being played now mm-hmm. is not comparable to the form of the game that was played in the past. Mm-hmm. So to compare mm-hmm. is, is, is not an even comparison, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a great sport for, for fans, mm-hmm. you know, and, and good banter. Right. But uh, those, those, you know, the old school NBA was like the way they play the game now, mm-hmm. that's not the same. I would have got a million points and and a thousand rebounds if mm-hmm. I was playing today, mm-hmm. right? So 
So that's just the evolution of of, of things. But uh, you know, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the suit and all that plays right. out. But yeah, it will be. It will be. Yeah. But you know, like changing it to fifty four holes yeah, versus seventy two is a lot. Yeah. You know, it's it's it's, it's analogous to taking a 48-minute basketball game and we're just going to play 36 minutes now. Three on three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a completely different game. Right, you know, right, So, right. I mean, when the ABA and the NBA merge, right? Yeah, there were changes made. Mm-hmm. ABA played a more street ball style. Street ball. I mean, that's the way the NBA plays. Mm-hmm. ABA created the three-point line. And, and, you know, so there are changes that could be implemented that is good for the game. And it's part of the evolution, as you say, of the game. Right. But to me, this is not part of the evolution. It's a completely different game that they're gotcha. playing. But yeah. who, who's who's the decider of whether uh, innovation is good for the game? Who's 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 that god? And we'll leave on that because we yeah. got to go into another okay. <laughs> right? Yep. So uh, have we seen the reemergence of the uh, track and field, U.S. track and field in the recent in the recent World Championships, having gone at three me- uh, 33 medals, some records were broken. Uh, the women, 4 by 100 mm-hmm. defeated the Jamaicans, right? So, so it seems that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. what do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we U.S. track and field since, what is it, LA 84? Was that it? They've been sort of on a downward trajectory, right? which I really didn't even think about until a couple of days ago and you know when when with the championships going on and everything um so yeah it looks like we're turning a corner here uh but i don't know that we're turning a corner as a u.s track and field team as a whole it seems okay. like we're making we're making headway maybe on the female track and field side, especially more on the sprint side. Yeah. Um, thoughts on that? Is it is it as yeah, a we, whole, or, uh, or are we you know specifying in one one group of the track and field team? Yeah, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. the races, the sprint races, are the high mm-hmm. profile, right? right? And mm-hmm. that's what everyone is usually looking at. Yeah. Uh, gentleman name escapes me, but we had a record in the two hundred. Mm-hmm as well in the men's, right. right? Which had stood for quite a number of years. Mm-hmm. And for me, it, it was just a transition from when we were younger, when there was a foregone conclusion that the mm-hmm. U.S. would, uh, you know, win all of the sprints. Right. Then with the emergence of uh, the Jamaican team and men and women, uh, where you didn't see those stars and stripes crossing that finish line right. in first for like a decade or more. And now you see seems like and you know carl lewis coming out being very critical of the u.s team and uh getting away from fundamentals of passing the baton and those type mm-hmm. of things it seemed like uh now there's been a renewed vigor and and a force for the U, uh, the u.s to you know assume uh the dominance that it did for many years right right well hopefully we continue we're going back to the basics and the fundamentals is always key Hopefully, we continue to make strides in preparation for the for the next Olympics. True indeed, true indeed. So, Hassel Emanuel, have you seen it? He's the one-armed phenom that I call him. Yes. 
I've seen remote. I've seen highlights of him. Okay. Um, I haven't seen him play a game. I read articles about him. I didn't realize. I thought he was initially born with one arm, mm-hmm. but I found out that he was actually born with two arms and was some weird <laughs> injury where a wall fell on yeah, him as a, as a child. Yeah. yeah. And it yeah. took a couple of hours to rescue him, and which, you know, necessitated the need to amputate his left arm. I guess it's his, yeah, his left yeah. arm. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, maybe a third of it mm-hmm. he has. And I first saw him on a highlight as well. Mm-hmm. And they said recently doing, I think it's called a Jew tournament. He really shined, and he committed mm-hmm. to a four years uh, scholarship. Right. And it's it's just amazing for a one arm player, you know, with gifts and having worked that hard to achieve that type of level to where well, he's a D one now mm-hmm. college. I think he's like two hundred seven fourth prospect in the country mm-hmm. with one full working arm, right? Right. Have you seen him playing actually in I've, a game? I've only seen highlights. Yeah, yeah me I too. Actually... So I'm I'm like really curious to watch him play. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine why you can't overplay him to one side. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's hard to cross over with one one, one arm. I, I'm really curious to see what he does. I'm not saying he can't do it. Right. Uh, because I've seen it done in baseball. You know, there was a pitcher named Jim Abbott was, who was remember. born, remember? Yeah. He, he wasn't born with a right hand. So he basically played just with his left arm. Uh, and he... You know, he, he, he learned how to play the game with just the one hand. So, and he was, he was a fantastic pitcher. Um, so it's, it's not unprecedented to no, have a, pro- not, yeah, to have a professional yeah. athlete that only has, or that it's missing a limb, but, uh, be yeah, curious so inspiring, to see. It's yeah. inspiring for even able-bodied people. Oh, certainly. People who have, uh, you know, challenges around various levels of, of disability or ability, uh, just to see him overcome that and play at a high level in that way with one arm i mean i've seen athleticism some of the dunks that yeah. he's been doing no no he has the solve, highlights he are has to solve those problems yeah. on the court in a different way exactly than someone who has two arms so yeah so, so i'm cu- i'm curious to really see him play and watch him and how watch him show me how he learned to play to overcome you know his his uh, handicap. It's it'll be interesting. All, all the best to him in college. All right. So let's transition now. We uh, just wrapped up our round robin section, and uh, now we're going into our receipts. And our receipts are a section of our sh- of our programming where Fred and I share obscure or little known f- sports facts. Uh, from the lens of uh, Black America or uh, Japanese America. So today I was going to talk about something else, but nothing gets more obscure or strange than sumo wrestling to Americans, right? Mm-hmm. I thought I'd come in it's fascinating here. Fascinating, <laughs> Thought I'd come in here today and explain to everybody it's not just fat guys in diapers. Okay. Uh, it is a sport that's steeped in tradition. Uh, it dates back to 1185, so the 12th century. Wow. They've been competing in this. It's very, uh, it's a very prestigious sport. Uh, as a sumo wrestler, you are uh, held in 
very high esteem. Uh, traditionally, um, they're, they're very um, respected within, um, within society. Um, however, what you may not know is sumo, just like other sports that we may be familiar with, uh, has had their problems too. And sumo, which was always one of the top sports in Japan, uh, along with baseball and soccer, has recently seen uh, a very steep decline in uh, uh, fandom. Uh, and primarily because right around 2010, they had a huge uh, match or fight fixing scandal. Uh, organized crime got involved. Uh, they were fixing uh, matches. And so the sport itself, a sport that's existed since the 12th century, athletes who had been revered in the country are now looked down upon. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they've lost fans and they're trying to regain the trust of the Japanese people gotcha. and restore their reputation right now. And whether that happens or not remains to be seen. Uh, I think, you know, something like sumo, I think in, in this modern age was beginning to fade, you know, even before the scandal. Yeah. Um, but hopefully they could restore some of its uh, prestige and you know, continue on in Japan because it, it's, you know, getting back to tradition, it's sometimes nice to have uh, traditions like this. Uh, the foundational uh, stuff. Yes. Bring back the sumo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing this trend uh, between uh, the changing of the guard, so to speak, mm -hmm. with uh, tradition and, and, and evolution, so to mm -hmm. speak. And uh, often it's an uncomfortable kind of transition like that. Um, yeah, I just want to bring attention to one uh, Rube Foster. Andrew Rube Foster. He was the founder of the Negro Leagues in 1920. He was a, a phenomenal baseball player himself because in, in, at one time in the early part of the 20th century, uh, black and white Americans played ball together, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when, when the hardcore Jim Crow set in and some of those things altered that uh, Rube he he read he led the the movement for to start their own league for people black Americans and uh it was founded at the YMCA in in oh, wow. 1920 in Kansas City right and uh we definitely just want to give a shout out to him because kind of created an alternative universe, so to speak, for black Americans during that time with their own players, uh, their own uh, venues and circuit. And we know some of the legendary players who came out of some of those teams that eventually uh, transitioned into Major League Baseball and laid the foundation and paved the way for um, black players to come after them, actually. So we definitely want to give props to... Uh, Mr. Rube Foster. Yes, indeed. Thanks for sharing. Likewise, likewise. 
All right. So we are venturing on now. We've come to the portion of our show where uh, bars. So, so we're, we've expanded from four bars? Yeah, because we, didn't, we weren't sticking to it. Anyway, we do five and a half, six, uh, three, and a, three and a quarter. So yeah, we I just, just call I just, it bars. I just like the beginning, middle, and end. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. So you're going to kick us off this time? I could kick us off. All right. But, you know, this time I'm going to keep it to four. All right, right. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to see a movie, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie. Uh, we did, too. Loved it. Yeah, it was really, really good, but I'm not going to sing Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm going to sing this one. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world could be as one. Cool. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Oh, no, I'm still on Bob Marley for some reason. But, you know. <laughs> this morning, I woke up in a curfew. Oh, God, I was a prisoner too. Yeah, could not recognize those faces standing over me. They were all dressed in uniforms of brutality how many rivers do we have to cross before we can talk to the boss all we have it seems we have lost we must already pay the cost thank you <laughs> Burning and looting Bob Marley. Yeah, the classic, the classic. So before we, we close out our second episode, who would you like to shout out, Fred? Uh, we're going to shout out to, what, are, what was our distillery that we were? Kings County. All right, Kings County Oldest distillery. whiskey distillery in New York City. Yes. All right. So thanks for another fun episode. Indeed, indeed. And I would just like to shout out our production crew, Atlantis, Joanne, Jasmine, Michael, Krishna, the whole fam, the Shins, the Tuna Kills, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you all for all your hard work. And uh, arigato. Hey, why? Hey, why? (laughs) Peace and love, y'all. See you. Peace. For the next one.